Well, good morning, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. I've been looking forward to this for some time, though not expecting in this way uh, to be having to live stream to many of you. Uh, I was supposed to have an hour this morning to share in Sunday school about the last couple of years of ministry in Sydney, Australia, as we've been reaching Asians in Asia through Sydney. And so I'm going to take about two to three minutes just to share what's been going on uh, as you guys have been vital partners in our work and then before we get to the reading of God's Word. So let me just introduce myself. I am Richie Goodrich. Uh, my wife, Kelly, um, of 20 years, obviously can't be here. We have five children, uh, Hadassah, who's 11, Josiah, who's 10, Hannah, who's 8, Jedediah, who's 7, and then Hadara, who's 3. And I'm going to say hi to them. They're probably live streaming at home with the uh, in-laws and my wife. Uh, we grew up about an hour east of here um, in Greenville, Texas, and have been members at Trinity Presbyterian in Plano since 2002, and had the privilege to serve in missions over the last decade, the first six years in India and the last four in Sydney, Australia. And your church, this church, has been a vital partner with us over the last six years, and so we're very grateful for your partnership. If I could summarize ministry in Sydney, uh, we take a, an ecosystem approach to what we try to do. And we have a three-pronged ecosystem. And in an ecosystem, things feed off each other and support one another. Um, and we have uh, church planning, which is the heart of it. So Harbor City Church, a Presbyterian church plant, uh, a university ministry called Student Outreach to the World, reaching university students on four, now five major campuses in Sydney. And then the third element is City Sanctum, a ministry to workers in our city. And uh, I spent about probably 60% of my time with the church plant as a pastor there, preaching, discipling, shepherding, evangelizing, and then about 40% of my time as a pastor at the university ministry. Exciting things over the last couple years in our church plant, uh, we nominated and elected and installed our first couple ruling elders, and we've now become no longer a church plant. We're a fully established church, and that was just as of November this last year. We have about 75 members uh, continuing to grow uh, and reach out and see people come to faith and join the church and looking for a building and starting a capital campaign, so that's exciting. On the university ministry front, uh, we are like an RUF-style ministry. Many of you would be familiar with Reformed University Fellowship. If you would imagine that on four campuses, that's what we are, and all the campuses come together, and we especially focus on mission. And so every year, our mission month is May, and we preach on missions, we gather students who want to be involved in missions, and then we missiologically train them for the rest of the year, uh, teaching them covenant missiology and thinking about the nations, and then we send them in teams to unreached peoples around uh, Asia. We send them to Japan and Thailand to work with long-term missionaries for about a month, and so we give them a real missions vision, praying that they will be uh, impassioned senders, and many of them might go. And so each year we spend about 20 to 25 students through that. And so the Lord has continued to bless that. Uh, we've turned over our university uh, ministry leadership to a local young man, uh, an Asian Aussie. And so that's an exciting move. And then the third element is City Sanctum, our workers' ministry. And uh, we're very grateful for what the Lord is doing there. We have a missionary that's going to be joining to give attention to that ministry as we reach out to the workers in our city and continue to evangelize and equip Christians to live for Christ. So the Lord is doing good things in Sydney, Australia. We're grateful for your partnership with us uh, during this time and uh, continue to pray for the ministry there. A couple personal notes of things that have happened to us and where the Lord's moving us. Uh, we adopted a daughter from China, a little Hadara, Faith, uh, this last November, and that's partly why we're here. Uh, because of visa issues, and in God's providence, we happen to be here as we wait for her U.S. citizenship. Uh, we're very grateful for her. And ministry-wise, the Lord seems to be opening the doors for us to return to our previous field in India. And so we would ask that you would pray uh, that by the end of the year, we can get back there and continue the work there that God has called us to. Um, and that's where we were originally serving uh, when you guys joined with us. So thank you for your partnership. 
And let me now, uh, in light of that, turn our attention to God's Word, to Acts chapter 14. So you can open your Bibles there, Acts chapter 14. I was asked last month to preach on evangelism well before any of the COVID crisis was in view. Uh, You may be thinking, I don't really want to hear about evangelism with all that's going on right now. Why is that pertinent? But let me just give a reason or so before we get into this text so that you can be primed to hear this text. Uh, Many of our sermons and thoughts have been on focusing on God as our refuge, our strength, uh, finding trust in Him in the midst of the uncertainty, praying for His grace to end this crisis, to help us weather it, and we should do that, definitely. Uh, We need to grieve uh, those who are being deeply impacted by that. We need to pray for them, find ways to minister to them. We also don't need to lose sight of the fact that this is an incredible time for the church and its mission and its gospel. Uh, The Lord often uses challenges to our health and challenges to our economics to spread the gospel. That's really the story of Acts that we're going to look at. The gospel going forward through persecution, uh, through hardships, and God using those things to extend his gospel. And this may be an incredible time for the church in the days ahead, both with our neighbors and with the nations, for us to proclaim Christ, the only hope for a fallen world, to point them to his coming kingdom And we might find that in God's providence, people have receptive ears. And as we look at the history of the church, the church has often spread in the early centuries through pandemics, through plagues, as the church stood out, as we cared for those who were in need when maybe no one else would care, as we proclaimed Christ and showed the mercy of Christ indeed, God used that greatly in the early centuries to spread the gospel. And may it be the same today, however long this COVID crisis lasts. And so we need to think about evangelism, and I want to both uh, empower you or encourage you, but also equip you better to that great calling that we have all the time, but especially in a time like this. And Acts 14 is a great place to look as we look at the missionary Paul. So in light of that, please hear God's word from Acts chapter 14. The word of God says this, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles." When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, And seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are of men, of like nature with you. 
And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had, that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. My friends, I assure you that though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever in what you've just heard is God's word. Let me pray before we continue on in our reflections on this passage. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word. We're thankful for the privilege to read it, to hear it, to let it soak into our lives, to let it by your spirit magnify Christ and all his saving glory to us. And our plea today is that you would do that. As we consider the scripture, as we continue to look at it and unpack it, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine it to us, that we might see the matchless beauty of Jesus Christ, that knowing that he indwells us by your spirit, that we would live out our union with Christ by mimicking this missionary model of ministry, that we would have a heart for our non-believing neighbors and the non-believing nations And that more than ever in a time such as this, that we might proclaim the matchless beauty and the saving efficacy of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, would you speak to our hearts through your word this morning? Would you transform us that we might be more faithful disciples testifying to the word of your grace? And Father, we pray for all those who are here listening, live stream or in person who do not yet know Jesus. And we pray that in your mercy today, in your grace, they might meet Jesus in a saving way. And we pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. It's been about a decade uh, since our family moved from Plano, Texas to South India. Moving to South India was quite a culture shock. Uh, We had to learn how to do many things that we were pretty good experts at here in America all over again. And we needed local guides to do that. I'm a Texas boy. I love beef. But beef is not readily available in a Hindu country. You can't go to your local grocery store, and they don't advertise beef. But if you know the right people in the right places, you can find beef. And so I had a local friend who would take me to this one place on this little side street, and it said cold storage, uh, not advertising beef. Uh, You'd walk in, and you wouldn't see beef. It looked just like a meat market with chicken and goats. But then if you knew how to walk in the back room, it looked like you were going to the back, you would see the side of beef, and you could get beef. And so I learned from my friend where to find beef. 
I'm pretty good at navigating in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but the streets have no name in India, so it seems. I think you two got their song lyrics from that. And so you have to guide people by landmarks. And so it took me about a week of riding in an auto rickshaw with a, a teammate who'd already been in India for some time to even learn how to guide an auto rickshaw driver to my home because everything looked the same. And I had to say, turn here at this place and at this shop, go here. And so I had to learn how to mimic to do that. During our first week there, we were wanting some American food, if you will, and we wanted Chinese food, you know, because Americans, we eat a different type of style of cuisine just about every night, and we'd been eating Indian, 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 and it was good, but we really wanted some Chinese food. And I thought, at least I can probably order Chinese food on my own without the help of some of my local friends. Most Indians speak English, and they usually put uh, Indians on the, uh, auto, the phone delivery orders. And so I called up the local place that had Chinese food, and I said, I'd like to order some cashew chicken. And I was already envisioning the cashew chicken and how delicious it would be. And the guy who was taking my order said, okay. And then he asked me a question that shocked me. He said, would you like gravy with that? And I thought, gravy? Again, I'm a southern boy. I'm thinking chicken fried steak. That's what gravy goes with. Gravy goes with biscuits in the morning. Uh, gravy goes with mashed potatoes. But as far as I know, gravy doesn't go with cashew chicken. And so I politely said, no, I would not like gravy. And he said, are you sure you don't want gravy? And I said, no, I, th I think I don't want gravy. He said, I really recommend that you have gravy. And so I said, okay, you can give me gravy, <laughs> thinking that it would come on the side, and when it got there, I could just throw it away. Well, much to my chagrin, when the food came and I unpacked it, it was all soup. And I asked the delivery guy, I said, hey, I didn't order cashew chicken soup, I ordered cashew chicken. He said, well, you wanted gravy, and this is gravy. <laughs> and I discovered that to order something gravy was to turn a dry dish into a soupy dish. I couldn't even order Chinese food on my own without help. As men and women united to the Lord Jesus Christ, his life is at work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, impelling us to serve him, to be on mission with him, to be his disciples, to follow in his footsteps, to make him known. And sometimes we think, hey, I, I can do that. We feel that desire. We have that new zeal because the life of Christ is in us. And we think, I can do that. And we forget sometimes that we need to step and step back and learn from the experts. We need to learn from God and his word how he wants us to be on mission with him, especially when it comes to our calling to make disciples. And the first part of making disciples is preaching Christ to them. And so it's important for us to look into God's word in a place like Acts and say, how should we go about the mission of proclaiming Jesus Christ both to our neighbors and to the nations? And I think we have a great text here that we can mimic, if you will. Now, Acts is certainly, first and foremost, the record of God by the power of the Holy Spirit through his church spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And it records the historical record of that. But we also have opportunities to learn from the ministry of missionaries like Paul. And so that's what I want us to do from Acts 14 this morning. I want us to learn from Paul. And I want to encourage us to mimic the missionary model of ministry as we tell people about Jesus. That's the title and the heart of the sermon, to mimic the missionary model of ministry. And I'm going to give you four encouragements that I hope that as you lean in humble reliance on the Holy Spirit, we can apply to do just that. I'll tell you what they are, and then we'll go with them in a little bit of detail. First of all, from this text, I want to encourage you to pursue those who do not know Jesus Christ. 
Secondly, I want to encourage you to preach grace to them in an understandable way. Thirdly, I want to encourage you to prioritize gathering them into local churches or organized churches. And then fourthly, we'll see how we are to point them to dependence on Jesus Christ. Let's think about this first charge to pursue those who don't know Jesus Christ. The book of Acts is recording for us how God is spreading out his gospel. The, the, the MO is found in Acts 1.8 where the risen Christ told his disciples, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you see this three phases of mission and we see Acts unfolding that. We see initially the gospel going forward in Jerusalem as Pentecost through the apostles and others. And then after Stephen is stoned in Acts 7 and 8, we see the gospel begin to go out in Judea and Samaria, phase two, if you will. And then we get to Acts 13, and phase three goes into operation. Paul is called by the Holy Spirit, he and Barnabas through the church in Antioch, to go and begin to take the gospel to Gentiles who had never heard the gospel. And for the first time, we see that happening in our text today. Now, at first, it looks just like ministry other places. Look at Acts 14.1. Paul's MO, even on his missionary journeys, was to go to a synagogue. Acts 14.1 says that at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So Paul would often go there. He would go to a people who were prepared to hear the gospel. They were Jews who believed the Old Testament scriptures the Gentiles were God-fears who had been learning. They hadn't converted to Judaism yet, but they had been learning, and they had a somewhat biblical worldview. And so all he would have to go in and say is, look, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that you've been hoping for in your Old Testament scriptures. He is the Christ. Repent and believe in him. But then something unusual happens as we go on our texts. As they leave and go to a place in Lystra, they have an opportunity to do something that is surprisingly new. For the first time, we get to see them engage Gentiles, non-Jews, who are not even God-fearers, who have no Christian, or not Christian, would be the, that would be the wrong way to say it, no biblical background. They don't understand, they haven't heard the Jewish scriptures. And as Paul does a healing, he gets the opportunity to preach in verse 15. Look at verse 15. Now, they're trying to worship Paul and Barnabas. They think the gods have visited them, and Paul's trying to restrain them. And he says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. We bring you gospel that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. We have to appreciate the newness of what is going on here. The gospel is going for the first time if you will, to those who have no background knowledge. And God is going to begin to work. A new thing has happened here, but I want to draw our attention beyond Paul to see who is the one behind this. Who is the one who is really impelling Paul and Barnabas to go to these new peoples? And we know, of course, that it is the great missionary God, the triune God who called Paul out of darkness into light, who commissioned Paul and Barnabas through the church in Antioch, the Lord is the one who is passionately extending the good news of Jesus in his kingdom to those who do not know it. Luke highlights that for us in a number of ways. Look at verse 3. Look who bore witness to their word, essentially. It says, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, 
who bore witness to the word of his grace. The pronoun who there is the Lord. He is the one who is bearing witness there and when they went to Lystra as well. Everywhere they were preaching and yet it was ultimately the Lord who was bearing witness through them. He was the one who was causing their preaching to be effective, opening hearts. And notice as Paul reflected on his first missionary journey at the end of chapter 14 and verse 27, he characterizes it this way. He says, and when they arrived and gathered the church together, this is the church at Antioch, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Do you notice Paul's emphasis? He could have said what we have done and God helped us to do. But instead, both grammatically and in real life, he puts God as the subject and he says, it is God that has done this. It is God who has opened a door for the faith. Yes, we went, but it was ultimately God who was doing that. My wife is a great cook. Uh, She makes wonderful food and she likes to invite our children into the kitchen to help them and to learn. And when my two oldest were just beginning to venture in the kitchen to help make dinner, they would do very small things. So if she was making spaghetti, my daughter Hadassah might break the noodles and put them in the boiling water. My son Josiah might come in after the noodles were cooked and he might put in the sauce so that it warms up. And they would have very minor roles, but they were contributing and participating in the dinner being made. And if someone asked me, what did you have for dinner? I might say, well, Kelly made spaghetti last night. I typically wouldn't say, well, my kids made spaghetti and their mom helped them a little bit. Because she was the major actor. She was doing the main work. And here Paul is trying to emphasize that. God is the main actor. God's grace is the one that is overflowing. God is the one who is passionate in his overflowing matchless grace to extend Jesus Christ and the good news about him to others. God is the one who's calling us and God is the one who is working through us. Friends, we have to grapple with God's desire for us to pursue those who don't know Christ, how the spirit of Christ is in us, impelling us to send the good news to those who do not know him yet. Now, we know that worship is the chief purpose of our existence. Your mission motto is great, or your calling motto, you exist to exalt and enjoy Jesus Christ. That is chief, or as the catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is our main mission, but a very close second is that we create new worshipers of God through evangelism and mission so that more people and peoples, people groups, can join in in the white-hot worship of God, delighting in Him, experiencing salvation in Jesus Christ. And God is passionate about glorifying Himself by bringing new peoples to experience salvation in His Son and begin to worship Him. Many of you may be familiar with John Piper's wonderful book, Let the Nations Be Glad, and it opens with these arresting words that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And so we should have a a white-hot passion for our God to glorify Him, to create more worshipers through evangelism and mission And yet, if we're honest, it's very easy for us to just spend our time with those who already know Christ. It's easy to go to church and to our small group and our discipleship meetings and different gatherings with our Christian friends because it's easy. It's such a joy to share the communion we have in our union with Christ together. And if we're not careful, we can slowly, maybe unintentionally, not have that vigor to pursue those who do not know Christ. 
to not share the heartbeat of our triune God who is pushing the gospel forward in his grace. I want you to think about your life. I want you to take a minute and reflect on the non-Christians who you rub shoulders with on a regular basis. If you're a student in your place of education, your place of employment, your neighborhood, could you think and call to mind two or three specific names of non-Christians that you regularly rub shoulders with, or maybe not right now rub shoulders, social distance with? Can you have those two or three names in your mind? You can write them down if it's helpful. But put those two or three people in your mind that you have an ongoing relationship with that you know do not know Jesus and maybe know very little of him. And let me ask you some questions about them. Are you praying regularly for them? Are you regularly going before God and saying only you can open their hearts? Lord, would you give me opportunities to share Christ with them? Would you put other Christians in their life? Would you work in them? And then are you putting feet to your prayers? Are you actively engaging them in relationships? Are you careful that not more than two, three, four weeks goes by that you don't find something to do with them? Have them over for a meal or go watch a movie together, have a cup of coffee or share in a common hobby just to spend time with them? Are you intentionally building relationships with them? Do you have those type of relationships with non-Christians? As you follow a Savior, as you're united to a Savior who had the reputation of being the friend of sinners, is his life in you impelling you to follow that model? And here's a way that I always find convicting to think about and evaluate that if I really am building relationships with non-Christians. If God were to move you from this place, from Texas, if that's where you're watching from, to another place across the country or across the world, would there be at least two or three non-Christians that would deeply grieve that you're gone, that you've been such a good friend with that they would think, ah, I'm so sad that they're leaving? If there are no non-Christians in your life who would grieve you moving halfway across the country or world, Perhaps you aren't following God's call to pursue those who do not know Christ. Perhaps there is a place for repentance and for God's grace to give you the heart of God to pursue those who do not know Christ. Friends, I know our lives are busy. We have a lot going on. But we have to be careful that we are at least pursuing people in relationship, even if it's just two or three, maybe just two or three, praying, seeking opportunities Because if the life in Christ is within us, he is impelling us to pursue those who do not know Jesus Christ. Now, as we pursue them, as we have opportunities with them, and when you have friendship with non-Christians, you have opportunities to bear witness. It just comes naturally. It's a matter of whether we'll take them. But we want to make sure, secondly, what we learn from this text is that we must preach grace in an understandable way to them. That's our second point. Preach grace in an understandable way to them. Now, in most of Paul's sermons we see in the synagogue, he he went about it very differently. Again, he was speaking to people who knew the story of creation. They had the biblical God in mind. They knew of Adam and Eve and the fall. They knew of God's call to Abraham. They knew of Moses and the Exodus. They knew of King David and the promise of the Messiah and how the prophets were with increasing intensity looking for the son of David to come, the Messiah, and the long-promised kingdom. And again, all he had to say was, look, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. But when he preaches at Lystra, we notice that the way he preaches is quite different than that. It's arrestingly different. 
because he's not addressing people who have a biblical worldview. And we need to pay attention to how he changes his method of preaching, his method of presentation, what he does. And so I want you to reread verse 15 to 17 with me, and I want to highlight a few things. Verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Notice that he's spending a lot of time on the doctrine of God and creation. Now, remember, this is a summary. These three verses are not his entire message. You know, he probably spoke, who knows, 45 minutes, an hour longer. This is a a very condensed summary. But what Luke wants to highlight is the fact that he's starting it who God is, what he's done, starting with the doctrine of creation. Remember, this was a worldview where there were many different gods, where creation, if you will, was more oftentimes the the byproduct of the warring of the gods or an accident or something that was not good. And God, or Paul says, no, before I can tell you about what God has done for our world, I have to tell you about who God is, that he is the creator. He's the one who made everything. He is no local deity All the other deities are imposters. They are vain things. There is one God, the living God, and he is your creator. He made you and everything in it. That would have been a radical shift for them, but a necessary thing to understand the gospel. Notice verse 16. He says, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. He's speaking to very religious people. But what he's not saying is that, oh, your religion's okay. What he's saying is that though you're religious, you have been alienated from God. These will not allow you to worship God or to know him. They are vain. He's explaining false religion. He's highlighting the exclusivity, if you will, of the gospel. He's showing there's only one way to be right with your creator. These are vain ways. And in verse 17, notice what he says. Yet he, God, did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And he speaks of this God's common grace and his providence, how he has cared for them. Though they have been worshiping and rebelling against him in false religion, he says, God has still been good to you to prepare you and allow you to see his goodness. Paul preaches the good news to them. Verse 15 says that he preached the gospel. He preached the good news. We see him preaching repentance, that they should turn from these vain things. And again, we only have a very snippet of the sermon. But what is so important to highlight is that he doesn't just go to them and say, hey, you're a sinner. Jesus died for your sins and you need Jesus. That would have been unintelligible to them. To come and say, hey, Jesus is the Christ. And they would have said, what does that mean? And it's so instructive for us to see that he's giving them a the broad outlines of a whole biblical worldview so that they can understand in context who Jesus is. I'll never forget a conversation I had with a young Pakistani woman here in Dallas at my place of work. Um, I, I worked at Interstate Batteries for 10 years while I was working my way through undergraduate and graduate school. And her mother, uh, Farah, had recently moved from Pakistan so her two daughters could get their graduate education. And so during the summers and winter breaks, they would come work at the warehouse that I worked at. And one day I got in a conversation with Maureen, and she was a nominal Muslim, would call herself a Muslim. My estimation, she was nominal, but that was kind of her worldview. And so we got into a conversation about the gospel and really talking about God as Trinity. And I realized that she was having a hard time connecting things. And so I stepped back, and we were on our lunch break, so it was fine to talk for a while. 
I said, Maureen, has anyone ever just told you the big story of Scripture? Just step back and told you what the Bible's all about and its main message. And she said, I don't think so. And so I just walked her through the very simple, basic presentation of Christian worldview that many of you may be familiar with. Four-act story of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And so for about 10 minutes, I just spelled that out. Who God is, how we were made in his image, how the world is good. It's a material world. It's good. We have a calling to steward it and have dominion over it. How we'd rebelled against God in the garden and plunged the world under God's curse, and yet God had promised mercy, and that God took a man named Abraham who he promised to send the Redeemer through, and then how the Son of God became incarnate as Jesus Christ. As a substitute for sinners, he lived an obedient life, died an atoning death on the cross, was raised, ascended into heaven, as a commissioned his followers to proclaim the good news of his kingdom throughout the world, and he will return again to bring in in full measure the kingdom of God. And I spelled that out in longer form. And I was struck by her words after we did that. She said, you know, I've never really understood what Christianity is all about, but now I understand the Christian message. It makes sense to me. Now, she didn't repent and believe right there. Uh, I had lunch with her mother just a couple weeks ago because I've kept a relationship with her mother. And so far, Maureen's not a Christian, but at least she understood the message. It was intelligible to her because I stepped back and especially emphasized God as creator, the creation, the big story. It's really important for us to do that as we engage non-Christians. We especially need to emphasize grace. God's grace in Jesus Christ must be emphasized because grace is so distinctive from every other world religion. Look at verse 3, how the message of the gospel is characterized. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his, and notice the phrase, grace, or the word the word of his grace. The whole message in one way can be summarized. It's a message of grace. It's God giving good to those who deserve the exact opposite. And yet every other world religion is works-based. It really is. No matter who you're with, no matter what part of the world, other religion, or even irreligion, which is essentially a type of religion, is advice. You have advice how to live a better life. You have advice how to worship the God. It's advice how you can ultimately save yourself if you apply yourself well enough. And in contrast to that, the gospel is not advice about how we can save ourselves. The only advice it gives us is that we cannot save ourselves. And it gives us an announcement of what the triune God and the person of his son Jesus through the incarnation and his life, death, and resurrection has done for sinners so that as a free gift, we may join ourselves to Jesus Christ by faith and experience salvation in him and join in his kingdom and begin to be reconciled to our God and worship him. And we have to be so careful to make that clear because it's really hard to get. It seems that our fallen default mechanism is to focus on our work and effort and the gospel wants us to focus on the work and effort of Jesus Christ. And so we have to preach grace, and the only way to respond to that and receive that is faith. Look at verse 22. Our message and our response can even be summarized as faith. He says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encourage them to continue in the faith. Our message can be characterized because it's a faith response that's required. Or look at verse 27. 
And when they'd arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That's the only way to respond to grace so that it's not works. We have to join ourselves to the person of Jesus Christ. We have to put our trust in him. And so friends, as we engage our non-Christian neighbors, we cannot make the common mistake of assuming too much and thinking that they know that we can just simply say, hey, you're a sinner, Jesus died for you, put your faith in him. We have to step back. And following Paul's missionary model, we need to explain the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation, and tell them the big story. This church is thankfully reaching more and more people who are not from America. You'll have an ESL program that is reaching many people who are coming here from the nations. You have a a Chinese church plan here, which is great. And you're going to have many people who do not have the same background of churched people in Texas. And even now, many of the younger people, 30, 40, and below, even they, many of them have not grown up in church. And many of them are almost as unchurched, as you will, as the immigrants who are coming. And we have to be careful that we can communicate the full message so they can understand it, that we know how to communicate the full message. And so my encouragement is that if you don't know how to present the gospel in a fuller measure, that you simply study (laughs) I find the creation, fall, redemption, consummation such an easy and simple way to tell the story of the Bible, to fill out some details of that. And there's many resources to help you do that. I also want to speak to you if you're not a Christian yet, and you're either in this room or you're listening live stream, and you've been hearing Paul's message to those who are not yet Christians. And I especially want to emphasize what he said in verse 16, that in past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. And non-Christian, maybe to this point, God has been allowing you to walk in your own way. And yet in his goodness and mercy today, I don't know if it's the first time or the hundredth time, you're hearing the gospel of Jesus. You're hearing that there is salvation in no one else but the Christ that Jesus proclaimed, that the only hope is his kingdom that is coming, that God has been good to you. He has preserved your life. And if anything, this COVID crisis teaches us, it teaches us how vulnerable and how weak and how anything we would put our security in in this world will not last. And here today, God is offering you his son, just as he offered these people in Lystra 2,000 years ago. And so I would plead with you, if you're not yet a Christian, embrace Jesus. Join yourself to him by faith. Receive his grace that is found only in him. Because Christianity is not a system of belief. It's not a philosophy. It's ultimately about a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God who lived and died and rose again on behalf of sinners. So that as we put our trust in him, we are reconciled to God and forgiven and given eternal life. So friends, we've seen that we have to pursue those who don't know Christ. We need to preach grace in an understandable way to them. And then we need to prioritize gathering them into organized churches. That's our third point. Prioritize gathering them into organized churches. And I'll move quickly through these last two points. Notice that what Paul did as people responded. Now, when he goes, there is no church. So he's, if you will, creating the church through the preaching of the gospel. But he doesn't leave them as individual followers of Jesus. Notice verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 
We see at the very beginning an organized church, local churches, local groups of believers who met together to worship and learn and pray and witness and serve together. And God appoints pastors or elders for them. It's organized. Notice that he appoints a plurality of elders. It's not just one. It's a pure leadership structure of a multiplicity of elders. That's why we're a Presbyterian church. From the Greek word presbyteros, which means elder. And what the elders do is that they are the ones who shepherd and guide the church and continue to teach God's word and help the church to grow and equip all the members to do the work of the ministry. Notice verse 22 where Paul says he's strengthening the souls of the new disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So he wants the new disciples to be strong. And what I want you to do is to connect verse 22 with verse 23 and see that the way he wanted that to continue was through an organized local church. That's why he appoints elders for them and into churches to gather them in. Because the church is the vehicle both for evangelism and the destination of those who respond and are responding. Because we are called to be joined to Christ and to his people who are also joined to Christ. And yet, sadly, in our American culture, oftentimes our Western culture, we are diminishing the idea of the local church. Men like George Barna, the Christian pollster, has written books called Revolution, Pagan Christianity, and Churchless, where he's calling Christians out of organized local churches. He says things like, if the local church is the hope of the world, then the world has no hope. Or local churches have virtually no influence in our culture. Or the local church appears among entities that have little or no influence on society. And this resonates with our Western individualism. Yeah, maybe I'll gather with a few believers to read the Bible and scriptures, but I don't need pastors. I don't need an organized church. And yet we see that Paul's missionary method in the New Testament is a stark contrast to that. We see that the Spirit empowers certain men who are godly and gifted to step into a place of organized leadership. It's how Christ, as the chief shepherd, cares for his sheep. The idea of churchless Christianity is foreign to the New Testament. And not only is that the destination that we're trying to gather people into, that once they become a Christian, we join them into a local church. When we see that this is their destination, we need to see how the church is a vital part of the strategy of gathering people who don't know Christ. You see, the good news is that sharing the gospel is not just up to you, the Lone Ranger Christian. You have a church community to join you in that. And we need to use the church community for that. We want it to be such that the church is so involved, other members in our local church, that once they do become a Christian, if they do, it's, it's natural. They already know they're supposed to be part of a church. They've already been experiencing community and worship and teaching and preaching. And so that when they come to know Christ, it's, there would never be an idea they would be a Lone Ranger Christian. But that membership in a church would be natural. There's a young man named Adrian, a Chinese, uh, Korean Aussie who came to faith uh, just last year, and he'd been coming to our church plant for about three years, regularly coming to hear the preaching of the word. People were welcoming, and they would invite him to lunch and spend time with him and build relationships with him. He came to the small group that we hosted our home, and my kids and I were praying for his salvation. And I began to meet Adrian about two and a half years ago. And we would meet every two to three years, and I'd answer his questions about the gospel. We'd go through books together that explain the gospel. 
And then he came to faith last year and has just grown as a young man. And he wrote down his testimony in a little booklet our church produced. We're having an anniversary celebration this month, a 10-year anniversary of when the church plant first was formed. And he said this, it really struck me. He wrote this at the end of his testimony about our relationship together as his pastor. He says, what is interesting though is becoming a Christian did not change my relationship with Richie. We still meet up regularly for lunch and study. The only difference is that from a relationship of discipleship, it has developed into fellowship with a close brother. And so as he came to faith, he just naturally continued in the worship of the church, coming each Lord's Day to hear the word, involved in people's lives, meeting with his pastor, growing. He's already began to disciple, try to disciple others. And so friends, we need to have a vision of that it's not just me out there, it's us, it's Redeemer, and we need to take advantage of that. What does that look like? Let me give you a brief vision before we go on to our next point of what that looks like. When we were planning our church in, in India, we would often talk to our, our people there because they were trying to reach Hindus, who many of whom had never stepped door, foot in a church, had no idea what church was about. And if you invited someone just to the church service, they might say, no thanks. Or they might come once and then never come again. So what do you do? And so this isn't original with us. We use this. I don't know where we got it. But if you think of a target with maybe five concentric circles, and the goal is them being in church, hearing the word of God, in worship, hearing the preaching of the gospel, and that's the target, but you may not be able to get into the target yet. So think about your farthest concentric circle. That's you and your relationship with them. That's you having them over for dinner, grabbing coffee together, finding a common hobby. That's a great way to build relationships. Find something you're passionate about, enjoy and invite your non-Christian friends with you. And so you try to build that relationship. Then the second layer, the next concentric circle is this. You invite them to shared events with other Christians. So maybe if your hobby is rock climbing, instead of just you and your non-Christian friend going rock climbing, you have two or three Christian friends go with you. And you allow them to meet other Christians who are just normal people, and they hopefully see something different about them. And you begin to do that. And then the next thing, the next concentric circle is to find events that aren't Bible studies, they aren't church services, but maybe something your church is putting on. Like I noticed you all do musical concerts. You have one coming up in April. Don't know if it'll happen. But you had one in, I think, February with Andrew Peterson. Not necessarily a church service, not a Bible study, but hey, it's a great musician and concert. Come to that. And so then they've moved from hanging out with you to hang out with some of your Christian friends to a Christian event. And then the next closest concentric circle is maybe a Bible study, a small group in your home. Still not worship, but it's more exposure. And so you're, you're slowly taking them step by step as you have an ongoing relationship closer and closer. And then maybe after they've experienced a little bit of Christian community, seen Christians love on them, had fun with Christians, began to hear the Bible, then maybe they're ready to come to church and begin to ongoingly explore the gospel. And so we need to have that long view and that intentionality. Don't get discouraged if you invite them and they say, I don't want to go to church. Or they come once and never come again. Have that intentionality to continue to reach out and bring them in closer and closer. Because it's not just you. It's the spirit of Christ and his church gathering in his people. So friends, we have to pursue those who don't know Christ. We need to preach grace in an understandable way. We need to prioritize gathering them into the local church. And then what is to characterize this new discipleship? Fourthly and finally, we want to point them to utter dependence on Christ. Utter dependence on Christ. What we are struck with in Acts chapter 14 is that to follow Christ is not an easy thing. It's a call to suffering. Look at verse 5. We see it in Paul's life. 
An attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. Or look at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And it's not just Paul's example, is it? It wasn't just that he had that, but the followers of the apostles, thankfully, you know, everything is going to be really good for them. It's going to be easy for them. No, look at verse 22. This sounds odd to us. He's strengthening the souls of the disciples. Is he telling them, look, you can just live your best life now if you follow Jesus. If you follow Jesus, COVID won't touch you. If you follow Jesus, everything will go well. No, what does he say? How does he strengthen them, encourage them? He says that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He's saying that to follow Christ is a call to suffer. Life will actually be harder now in the present if you follow Christ, but it's worth it. He's the only way to be reconciled to God. He's the only way to have the hope of the kingdom of God that is certainly coming at his return in full measure. It's been inaugurated now, but it's coming. And he's saying Jesus is the great treasure. There is no prosperity gospel in the Apostle Paul. You know, the good thing about this coronavirus mess is that I think it, and we'll see how long it continues, but it undermines the false prosperity gospel that is so prominent in America and in the world. This idea that if you just, if you just love God enough, if you just have enough faith, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And what we see in Acts is that God is often willing to sacrifice the economic prosperity and even the health of his people if it means the gospel going forward. And he often uses both those things to make the gospel going forward because our hope is not in now. Our hope is not in living a worry-free life now. Our hope is in the coming kingdom of God and resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth that will be ushered in at Jesus' return. And friends, because the kingdom of God and the calling to follow Jesus is a call to suffer with him because he's a treasure and he's worth it and he's worth dying for, we have such a message during this coronavirus crisis. We can point them to say, look, I don't know what this world holds for us. I don't know what happens in the weeks or months ahead, but I can offer you an unshakable hope in Jesus Christ that even if all your money's taken away and even if your health is ruined and even if you die, it can't ultimately touch you because Christ offers resurrection. He offers the kingdom of God in its fullness to all those who will trust in him. What a message we have for such a time as this when everything is uncertain and we can point them to utter dependence on Christ and perhaps now in our world more than ever, God is preparing people to listen to that. Perhaps now he's shaking all the foundations, especially in the West, that we put our confidence in and showing us that the only place of rest is in utter dependence on Jesus Christ. Friends, we have an incredible opportunity in this COVID crisis. We need to pray and we need to seek God's grace that the life of Christ would be manifest through us so that we can mimic this missionary model of ministry. Now, my, my kids love animals. Um, they love learning about them. We homeschool, so we give lots of time for animal learning. And when we moved to Australia, we began to learn about Australian animals. And we learned that kangaroos are just fascinating creatures. We got to get up close to them and feed them and touch them. They're like a, they're like a life-size teddy bear. They're soft and mostly tender and sweet. We learned that kangaroos do a good job of loving their children. 
They're little joeys that are in their pouch. These joeys stay in the pouch for nine months after they come out. And they basically stay with their mama and they do everything with their mama. And their mama teaches them how to live and be kangaroo-y and to do kangaroo life. And as they spend that intimate time with mama, finally after a year or so, they're ready to move on. But because of their close connection with their mama, they know how to be a kangaroo. And then you contrast that with another animal my kids were learning about, the harp seal. Harp seal mothers could not be more different than kangaroo mothers. A harp seal mother, after 12 days, puts her little seal on a piece of ice and leaves them for good. And at 12 days, at almost two weeks, the harp seal can't even swim or hunt for food. And so it's a waiting game. They have to wait about six weeks to develop enough in order that they can go and hunt and feed themselves. They end up losing half their weight, and about 30% of them die before they ever get to their eight-week mark. Friends, the good news of the gospel for those of us who are followers of Jesus is that he is much more like a kangaroo mama than a harp seal mama. He doesn't throw us out there to, hey, I've got this mission for you and good luck. I hope you can do it. He draws us in close, intimate communion with him. And he's better than a kangaroo mama because he doesn't just give us nine months or a year. He gives us every moment of every day from now into eternity. And his intimate union with us He empowers us and shows us through his scriptures what it's like to follow him and to make him known. And friends, today in Acts 14, Jesus has been showing us how to make him known, that we must pursue those who don't know Christ. We must must preach grace in an understandable way to them. We must prioritize gathering them into the local church, and we must point them to utter dependence on Jesus Christ himself. Let's respond to the Lord's word in prayer. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word. It is a precious gift to us. We thank you that in it you reveal your son so clearly. We pray, Father, that having seen him, having seen how Christ empowered Paul and Barnabas in the early church to make Christ known to those who did not know him, we pray that he would do the same in us, that your spirit would work in us so that we would indeed mimic the missionary model of ministry. Forgive us, Lord, for not having the intentionality to engage our non-Christian friends and neighbors and coworkers and classmates. Lord, give us a greater love for non-Christians than ever before as we see your great love for the world. And Father, would you help us to prepare well? Would you help us to know how to communicate the whole message of this life in an intelligible way to those who may have no background? And Father, would you use this church redeemer as a, a community of disciples Would you allow us to help one another in reaching our neighbors and the nations? Would you use us in our Bible studies and our outreach activities and our concerts and the Lord's Day preaching and everything that goes on in the life of this church to help gather in new people to Christ? And Father, would you help us to point everyone to utter dependence on Christ? Because his kingdom is unshakable. As your servant Martin Luther said, this body they may kill Goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, but the word of God abides still. Father, would you give us such a great passion that we're more concerned about your glory, especially in your gospel going forward, than our own health and our own finances. Lord, we ask that you would do these mighty things in us because you are a mighty God. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.